Welcome back to episode number 131 of the MP Dude. This is Jeff the MP Dude giving nurse practitioners a voice. That's all of our voices, guys. Even you out there listening right now in your car, listening to iTunes, and you think, ah, this doesn't really affect me. It does affect you. It affects all of us. These are questions and answers that affect all of those in nursing school, nurse practitioner school, practicing. It doesn't matter. These are all issues we all face at some point or time in our, in our careers. And I want to hear from you. If there's something that's in your gut burning a hole and you want to know, hey, I don't know how to handle this, I might not know either. But if you don't say something, we can't address it. So email me, jeff at the mpdude.com. I want to hear what's going on with you guys, and uh, we'll go from there, right? All right, so housekeeping real quick, and then we're going to jump in, because i got something kind of cool that I'm doing, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, we're at just shy, I think it was 2498 or 96 likes on Facebook. Again, not the greatest measuring stick out there to measure success, but at least it's something. So we're halfway to goal. We're almost there. So I want to see you guys sharing the show. Keep doing what you're doing, telling your friends about what's going on, and, uh, and and help support the show that way. How else do you support the show? If you want to do it financially, there's a couple different ways. I got four. Let's do four of them. Here's the four that you can do today. One, Amazon affiliate link. Easy. Go to my website, thenpdude.com. You click on the, the banner that says Amazon on it. It's at the bottom of the page if you're on your phone. It's on the right-hand side if you're on a desktop computer. You click on it, it takes you to Amazon. Do your purchasing you otherwise would have. doesn't cost a single dime more, and all it does is it helps me get a small percentage of what you buy so that I can help support the show with uh, paying for web hosting. That's a great way to do it. doesn't cost you anything more. Just a click. It's a click. Everybody can afford a click. I don't care if you're a student. You're, you, can, you can click a button. All right. You can also buy a Chronic Intractables t-shirt. Chronic Intractables, if you're a newer listener, listener or fans of the show, if you want a Chronic Intractables t-shirt, $25, you email me, jeff at the npdude.com. I say it a bunch of times throughout the show so you guys know how to get in touch with me. What your size is, where you want me to send it, and I'll send you a link to PayPal, and that's how you get your shirt. Three. Donate button, bottom of the page, you can click donate, PayPal, you can add a donation if you would like to to the show to help support the show, that's a great way to do it if you don't want to spend any money on anything else and you're like, I don't want to do a t-shirt, I won't wear it, I'll just collect dust, you can donate, that's an easy way to do it. Four, if you're in Ohio and you would like to have legal services for a review of your contract, I help people on a regular basis with reviewing their contracts. It's super easy to do. You email me, jeff at the npdude.com. That's the fourth time I think I've said it, right there. Easy. And the reason I'm being sarcastic about how to get in touch with me, because I get people all the time that say, what's your email? <laughs> how do I get in touch with you? I say it all the time. Okay. You email me your contract. I'll take a quick peek at it to see about how big it is, how much time it's going to take me, and, and talk to you, typically, over the phone, before I give you the price on what it's going to be. They're usually pretty close in the same range, range of prices. A couple hundred bucks. Just to review your contract, I'll outline it by hand, mark it up, scan it, send it back to you, and then we talk again. And I go through every single comment. Why do I do that? Lawyers don't do that. I do it because I'm educating you on what to look for in the future so that you become a smarter NP and can contract without the need necessarily of someone like me. Not to say I wouldn't help you down the line, but if you don't need me, you don't need me. So I'm trying to help you guys learn that stuff. All right. So what's cool that's going on? Those are the ways you can support the show. What's going on today? What am I going to do? And, and I'm going to... Um, 
go through and do a discussion that I've been asked to do for a uh, doctorate in physical therapy department that's pretty local to me about some insurer uh, malpractice and expert witness, expert testimony stuff. And I'm going to do my spiel for you guys. And it's a good summary. We've talked about a lot of this stuff in different places, but I'm going to do it all into one location. It's going to take about a half an hour, I think. And, um, you know, that way I don't, you know, because I expect to have some questions and answers throughout the session. But let's go ahead and do it now, okay, guys? So basically what we're going to talk about is malpractice in general and how that comes into play as an expert or an eyewitness and how this all falls into play. So the first thing you have to realize when you are an expert witness, whether you're an expert or an eyewitness, but, but primarily an expert witness, is that you... Um, have to understand what malpractice is. And you got to know what the standards are and the, and the measuring stick of this. And we do this a lot on our show here, but I haven't done it with this group. So I'm going to go through it with them and explain it the same way I do with you guys. So it's a repeat. It's just reinforcing the information you guys know. Three tests that you do to determine whether somebody has committed malpractice or negligence in general. The first is whether there is a duty owed to an individual. In malpractice cases, almost all of the time, you can throw down that one and say, it's a gimme, you're going to have a duty owed because you're doing something in the course of your business, you're doing something, you're getting paid, there's, a, there's an obligation that you have through your state licensing board that says that you have to not hurt people and do a good job and that you have ethics and standards and morality and all that other stuff that the state says we have to have, which you should have anyways, even if the state doesn't say that. So duty owed. Okay, second prong, did you breach the duty? And breaching the duty that's owed is measured by the standard of care. Everybody should be saying this in their, in their house, in their car, wherever you are right now, you should be able to repeat and say this with me. The standard of care is whether a reasonably prudent fill-in-the-blank, there's practitioner, bricklayer, physical therapist, uh, attorney, truck driver, doesn't matter whether the reasonably prudent blank would have done the same or similar thing in the same or similar circumstances. Now, whether you said it exactly the same way, I don't care, but you get the concept. How do we measure that is where the experts come in. And this is why it's important to go through these, these prongs of the malpractice uh, standard, because you need to understand as an expert that you might be called to help determine where the standard of care is. That's where the fight is, almost all of the time. Not always, but most of the time. So when you come to this standard of care, how do you measure it? Or the, the, uh, the, yeah, the standard of care, how do you measure it? You look at what the expert says. The expert is the person that's proffered. They are proffered. That's the legal word for offered up to the court to be analyzed and utilized. What is the purpose of the expert in this instance? It's to educate somebody that is a lay, lay person that doesn't understand the technicalities of whatever the, the technical information is. And they evaluate that and, and boil it down into a way that a lay person, which would be the judge or the jury, the trier of fact, if you will, to be able to understand that information. And without the expert, it's too complex and lay people couldn't understand what the standard of care is. So what we look at are the expert witnesses themselves, and that lends to whether they're credible as a witness, whether they have the necessary background, expertise, training, skill, knowledge, 
um, years of experience, all of those things go into play as to whether they are a credible witness, but it also goes into play onto whether they have the requisite knowledge to be admitted as being proffered to the court, to be accepted as an expert witness for that case. And then we'll go into that in a little bit later. What else do we look at to measure the standard of care? So we might be able to use the expert's testimony, but we might refute that testimony with pointing to evidence-based practice guidelines. Um, we might be able to point to research studies that have been done. We have other competing expert witnesses that will use those things to say, no, they're full of crap. They don't know what they're talking about. They're not using the standard of care over there. It's this standard of care instead. So there's a competing argument there. That's where the battle of the experts comes into play. Trade journals, peer-reviewed journals, um, there's tons of things that you could look at to evaluate whether there is uh, um, credibility to the evidence being brought in and, and whether that is truly the standard of care or it isn't. All right. So that's, that's really where that comes from. And it's important to understand as an expert witness that when you understand what the standard of care definition is, you can help boil that down for the attorney and for, for um, not only for behind the scenes preparation for litigation or within the litigation, but you're also going to be seen as more credible and understood by a trier of fact. The goal here is to be the one that everybody wants to listen to. Why would you want that? Well, one is you're getting paid to be that. But two, you want to do it again. If you like being an expert witness and making excellent money on an hourly basis, then you really, really want to evaluate how good you are at it by doing the right thing and boiling it down and taking it serious, okay? And we'll get through some of like some tidbits about being an expert at the end. So the third branch or the third prong of malpractice is did the breach cause the harm? Okay, was there a damage? But for the defendant, and I'm going to use defendant in generic terms because it could be before the lawsuit, so it may not technically be a defendant, but for the defendant or the professional's action or inaction, the plaintiff or patient was, would have not been harmed. So the causation has to be a link there. And so expert testimony will come in often to determine whether even though there was a duty owed by the professional and they breached the duty, the breach of the duty was not substantial enough to have caused that harm. So experts come in for that and determine whether that causation was there. In addition, they can help determine what the amount of damage, so you can get an actual money amount of damages, maybe uh, you know that type of injury would typically cause lost work for six weeks of time, um, but they were out for four months instead. And because of that, it ended up, um, you know, the, the amount of damage, sorry guys, I got my alerts on. Um, the amount of damage uh, would, would be mitigated because of that. Or were there other things that could have happened in between? So they breached the, the, the duty. They didn't follow the standard of care but there were what are called super intervening factors. In other words, um, in, in, in a physical therapy sense, I would use an example like this. Um, you treated a patient for a hip surgery, everything was going well, you didn't really follow the standard of care, did not necessarily cause harm, 
um, but what you did didn't make them better. Um, it's questionable as to um, maybe they had a fall downstairs and they could have been um, prevented if you had increased their treatment modalities and maybe prevented it from getting that, that weak. But in reality, they were drunk. There's a heck of a good super intervening factor that came in. You know, if you weren't drunk, you wouldn't have fallen or you wouldn't have had instability. Even though the hip was potentially not improved by the PT because they didn't follow the standard of care. Does that make sense? Super intervening factors can happen too. So those are the three standards, the, the duty owed, the breach of the duty, and did the duty cause, a breach of the duty cause the harm. So those are the main things. And coming into play with any one of those areas, understanding that as an expert witness helps boil it down much quicker, much faster for, for the attorney, and it shows that you know what the heck you're doing. And that's going to be marketing for your next case. So they're not going to drag their feet with somebody that can't really help them understand the case and how it fits into their case. You need to be the one to understand how it fits into their case so that you can be a driver of the information. Now, what, what else is there? There's, there's a couple things we want to talk about um, with witnesses, the types of witnesses, and then we'll get into uh, what expert witnesses do specifically in a case. Eyewitnesses, two types of, of witnesses. Eyewitness expert witness. Eyewitness, there's some main differences between the two. Eyewitnesses get subpoenas to come to court. Okay, we'll talk about subpoenas in a second. We've talked about this in the past on my show, but we'll talk about it again. And experts get paid to come to court. They're, they're invited to come to court. Eyewitnesses are mandated to come to court or to a deposition or to a hearing or something. Okay, so eyewitnesses are those that use their senses, eyes, ears, nose, mouth, skin, okay? You're all medical, healthcare, pathophysiology, physiology, you guys understand the senses, so I don't need to go through that. I heard him yell through the wall, you SOB, I'm going to kill you. That's an eyewitness. Cato Kalin pounding on that stupid jury box with the two thumps and then the third thump. You guys can't tell I'm, I'm old and I actually watched that trial on TV. It was great. It's great drama. But you hear Kato Kalin doing this thing. My dog's going to bark. Right? They pounded three times. I heard that thump on the wall. Eyewitness. I saw him tear out of the parking lot and burn rubber down the street. Eyewitness. Okay? The problem is, is that the lines can blur on whether you're an eyewitness or an expert witness, depending on what you're brought into this, the case for. So you have to ask what the scope of your, of your invitation to talk to people and provide your witness, your testimony. If you're doing it as an eyewitness, it's about the things you, you hear, smell, taste, feel, thoughts, your personal stuff, right? So if you're an expert in nurse practitioning, or PT, or bricklaying, or truck driving, and you're called to court as an eyewitness, the second they start talking about professional standards of care, you stop talking and say, look, that's not appropriate. I'm here as an eyewitness. I'm not here as an expert. If you want me as an expert, I will give you a bill. We can talk offline, and I'll be happy to, to help you with the case as an expert witness. But I'm here today to talk as an eyewitness, not as an expert witness. Okay, big difference. 
Expert witnesses are paid. That's a big one. You're paid. Eyewitnesses are not paid. That's the big deal. So if you're getting a check for doing this work, you're an expert. If you're invited and you don't have a choice and the court says you show up, you're an eyewitness. That's the big difference. And it's very difficult to, to sometimes stop the line of questioning if you have a very aggressive attorney that's pounding you in a deposition that will say, you know what, you're here as an eyewitness. Did you remember this case? I don't remember this case. Yes or no. Do you remember this, this instance? I don't remember. You refer to the chart. We've talked about that in the past. You do good charting and you refer to the chart. You close those loops we talked about so many times. And you make sure that your charts are closed and then that you understand that the reason you chart so thoroughly and well is so that if you get pulled into a deposition as an eyewitness, all you have to say is, I don't really recall. I, it's in my chart. Whatever I wrote in my chart is what happened. It makes it really easy as an eyewitness, as a professional. You just point to the chart. Now, if you're being called in as an eyewitness, and this has happened to, thing, to my wife and it's happened to other people I know, where you're brought in and subpoenaed to a case for, let's say, child support, and they're asking you to come sit there, and you're being told you need to show up and bring a whole bunch of crap with you, which is a subpoena deuces tecum. That's not a... a great thing to happen as a provider or in a, as a healthcare professional because a lot of the records you can't bring under HIPAA. They have to do the proper records requests. So you show up and they start asking questions about, you know, medical stuff. What, when did you treat them? What did you treat? How did you treat it? And you say, I don't remember. It's in the chart. What did, what's the date on the chart say? I don't recall. I don't recall. I don't recall. That's your favorite answer as an eyewitness, as a professional, because you, if you really truly remember and you say, oh, it was June 2nd, but it was June 4th, could that lend an error in your or uh, uh, taint your uh, credibility? It could. It really could. So, uh, it, and that's a very innocuous one, but it could be very substantial. So, I would recommend that you try not to proffer up too much or give up too much information during a dep uh, deposition or in testimony as an eyewitness. If you're really not sure, you answer, I don't recall. And you say, I, you know, I could have been, it could have been that date. It could have been a week before it was, it was in this, it was in the winter time sometime. I don't know. I can't really remember. What's my chart say? And you point back to the chart as an expert witness, mm -hmm. the, um, the goal is that you again are there to provide information that is not easily obtainable by the trier of fact. And that's the judge or the jury. Okay. The, um, The focus of what an expert does, this is a good time to talk about that. The focus of what an expert does in court or out of court to help a, a case go forward is a couple things. One could be you're simply reviewing charts, coming up with recommendations to the attorney um, that is calling you in and offering you money to look at stuff to come up with idea of, is there a case here? If there is a case here, here's the missing holes and the missing pieces that we would need to know to see if there was a duty owed, a breach of the duty or damages, the three prong test. So you're there to guide them. That's what they're hiring you for as an expert. That's often what happens. Very few cases go to trial where you have to go in and sit on a witness stand. And if it does, that's a, that's a really close case, and it's going to be about all the experts. That's a bad day for everybody. And you're going to pay a ton of money to do it because you're going to get shredded on, the, on a witness stand. 
That being said, there's other things you do before you go to court. You could help develop what are called interrogatories. Interrogatories are questions, written questions that go to the other side. So what happens in a lawsuit is this. You file a claim. It says, you breached this duty. It was owed. You breached it. And here's the damages. And you owe X amount of dollars for your damages. And if you don't pay then um, we're going to sue you. That's the, that's the claim that would be in a letter format that would go to the malpractice insurances on, on the other side, and then they're going to get your defense attorneys and all that stuff, and you're going to try to work out a deal before it goes to litigation. And if you can't come to terms with that before the statute of limitations, you're going to file a lawsuit. And then you go to a court and you file the same claims and say, this is the duty that was breached, it was duty owed, it was breached, and here's the damages, and that claim would be an official lawsuit at that point. The defense has 30 days or 28 days, depending if it's state or federal, to file a, an answer to that. And in the answer, they're going to deny a bunch of stuff and say, yeah, we, we did see them, but we didn't breach the duty. We didn't do this. We didn't, the standard of care was met. And there's not a lot that's said in that answer. It just says we didn't do it. So because you have a claim that just says you did something wrong and then you have an answer that says we didn't do something wrong, you got to find out somewhere in there all the facts of the case. That's discovery. That's the next phase. And there's a lot of pretrial hearings and finding out and setting schedules and all that good stuff. Well, part of the, the discovery phase is one side is going to ask a bunch of extremely intelligent questions, usually developed by an expert that will or assisted by an expert that will help define the facts of the case so that they know who needs to be deposed, who needs to be brought in as eyewitnesses, um, all that good stuff. So you can help with that phase too. So the discovery phase is very common for you to do that. At this point, you may be asked to make a report based upon the standard of care, based upon damages, based on whatever you think the, the hook is on this case. And you're going to provide a report that is basically going to say there was a duty owed, the duty was breached because they violated the standard of care, or they didn't, if you're on the defense, we didn't violate the standard of care because of these. And that the third thing is going to be whatever, whether there was damages, causation, super intervening factors, all those things come into play. So the expert witness at that point is really preparing a document that will be proffered to the court. Again, we're proffered. You're given up to the court. But before that document will be proffered as evidence into the trial so that the trier of fact can evaluate whether it is helpful or not or whether it's good data, whether it's all that stuff, it has to be evaluated by the court to see if it's credible information. There was a guy back in Texas. His name was Cyril Wecht. I think it's Wecht. I think it was with a T. It might be Wecht. This guy was like a you know crime scene investigator guy, right? He was a, a doctor. He did all this stuff. You could have written a crime show about this guy, and probably half of the ones that are out CSIs are written around this guy. Well, he had t testified in thousands of cases, put thousands of people away on junk science that wasn't credible, but because of his background, experience, training, and skill purported in his ability to, to answer questions on the fly and sound convincing, his testimony was, was utilized without question over and over again. So they've come out with tests that they do called the Daubert test or the Daubert standards. And Daubert was a case that basically said that we're going to outline whether expert testimony is valuable to be brought into a claim. Here we do this in a special hearing. And that hearing is called a motion in limine. 
and it's an in-camera hearing. In-camera means behind closed doors. So the facts that get outlined in that hearing do not end up in the case itself. It's behind closed doors. So they're just evaluating the information and whether it's science, they're evaluating the expertise of the witness, what their credibility is, and they do the voir, which is the, the questioning. And if you guys have ever seen My Cousin Vinny, it's a great movie, go watch it, it's hilarious. I'm just a dork and I think it's funny, but there was an ex, just an excellent scene. And when I did my expert evidence class, and this was an extra class, I didn't have to take it, I did the equivalent of my doctoral thesis in law school in that class on expert evidence. So this is kind of a passion of mine, is the expert testimony stuff. In Rule 702 of the Civil, uh, the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, there's similar state rules that are out there that kind of tweak it, but it's essentially all the same. It mandates that you have to have this Daubert-type test hearing and a motion in limine to evaluate whether expert testimony is credible before you can allow it in. So when you are proffered as an expert, you can anticipate that if it goes to trial, and you're going to be your expert testimony is going to be brought into the case that at some point in time you or your evidence is going to go behind closed doors with both both uh, plaintiff and defendant attorneys and you're going to get drilled you're going to get voir dired you're going to get asked questions my cousin Vinny did this incorrectly but the questioning was very close it was in the actual court and if you remember it was the uh I can't remember her name. Marissa Tomei, I think it is. I'm going off memory. The, the, the girlfriend of Vinny, right? He says, I'm going to call Miss Vito to the stand. She comes up and sits down and she's all pissed off at him because, you know, they had a fight the night before. And uh, he goes, so I'm calling you as an expert about auto mechanics. And the, the defense or the uh, plaintiff's attorney, the prosecutor, stands up and is all pissed off and says, no, I object. And, you know, why does she, you know, she's not an expert. And then he goes in and starts asking questions, the, the, the prosecutor does, and he goes, well, how, what, do you, what kind of work do you do? Well, I'm an out-of-work hairdresser, right? And he goes, this is ridiculous. How can she be an expert? And then they go through and start asking questions. And she goes, it doesn't. You're right. Thanks. And she gets to get up and she tries to go leave. And they say that you can't just leave that quick. And so he starts asking questions about mechanic stuff. And she says, my uncle was a mechanic. My brother's a mechanic. I'm doing my Italian accent. That's, that's as good as it gets. And they go through and all these things. And eventually they realize that she really knows what she's talking about. So as an expert witness, you do not necessarily have to have a, a degree in higher learning. It really comes down to your experience, training, knowledge, and skill. Now, she may not be the most credible witness. She was available. They could bring in somebody else that is much better trained with certifications and letters after their name that will dispute all of the claims that she says but they better be able to back it up. So that, that movie did a great job with the voir dire because that's really kind of like what it is. They really just ask you specific questions about how you're trained, what's your background, and all this stuff is important because when you are deposed or when you, your testimony is going to be brought into a court, they will do the voir dire component of evaluating your credibility for all of it. And you're going to get shredded. This is why you make a ton of money. And ton of money is, you know, several hundreds of dollars to six. I've seen people say $700 an hour for expert testimony because you get shredded and you have to be able to handle it under composure. If you get flustered easy, you will not make a very good expert witness.
You got to have a thick skin. You got to let stuff roll. You can't be argumentative. You still have to be pleasant and professional. And you have to have a spine to be able to back, to, to, to fight against uh, a, an aggressive attorney that's trying to get you to slip up and say something different than what you've said in the past, something different that's different than in your reports, or say something that's different than what is the known standard of care. Because then they can point to your credibility and say, look, they're not a credible witness, and our witness over here is much better and much more credible, and they say something different. So a lot of times it's not what the standard of care is, but whether you're credible and how you support your credibility and how you, how you hold yourself out. So it, it can be very difficult, and it is very difficult, and, and you make, make your money. It's not easy money. Now, doing the behind the scenes, helping with reports and things like that, that's fine. But if you do not, if you get flustered easy and they say, you know what, we're going to we're gonna have to depose you and you're going to have to come and answer questions, you might be in over your head. If you're not a good uh, public speaker, if you're not good on your feet, if you're not able to say, wait a second, that's outside of the scope of what we're talking about and I'm not going to answer that or the attorney is you know, going to sit next to you and help you with that, that might be beneficial too. But if they're doing that, then, then your price is going to probably go down, right? All right, so there's your motion in limine. There's your basic standard. Here's, here's the standards for the Daubert test, right? Daubert hearing is basically that your information is based upon sufficient facts from the case. So if you're making a crap ton of assumptions to be able to get to what you need to get to, then that's not credible. That's not helpful to the trier of fact because it's not pertinent to the facts of the case. Second, Testimony is based upon reliable principles and methods. So this one's more related to like the, the hard scientist science where you have statistics. And um, I think of this one like accounting principles. You know, if you're doing an accounting principle methodology to, to value a company or something like that, you have to use known, reproducible justifiable accounting methods to crunch the numbers and anybody should in theory with the knowledge of, of that is similar to yours in accounting should be able to get to the same answers so whether the testimony is based on reliable principles or methods and in 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 healthcare it would be more related to um the studies and research that formulate evidence-based practice is where i would go with that three Expert has applied the principles and methods reliably to the facts in this specific case. So if you analyzed it based upon, um, let's say, a patient that had no comorbidities, but this patient has 10 comorbidities, and the standard of care would have changed because of those 10 comorbidities, did you apply the, the standard of care to the wrong person? So they, they can analyze that. And this is all designed to increase the credibility of the testimony to help the trier effect. I can't say that enough. Okay, If you meet all of those, you are technically going to be credible as a witness. Your evidence that you're bringing in, in theory, will be accepted by the court under the Daubert standards. And it should be permitted into the court. And then it becomes a question of, this person's credibility versus that person's credibility and how well they analyzed it in a form that the people can understand. So you might be the smartest guy in the room or gal and have the best information and have the standard of care locked down positively in your direction. But when you get up on the witness stand or when you're doing your deposition and you go to answer it, you do it with such technical jargon that people, you spin their heads off. They just can't keep up. Or you're so boring that they don't like you. Or you're a slob and you're dressed inappropriately for the for the situation and they see you and they, they're, they're so focused on the fact that you have, you know, giant gauges in your ears 
And that's, that's a detractor to them that they can like, I can't believe that. I wonder if that hurts their ears. How does they do that? I wonder if, if they've ever ripped one of those things out. I wonder if that, you know, and they're thinking about that, not listening to your testimony, then, then that is disruptive and distracting and that you could lose the case for them. So here's my tidbits of information. Um, the first thing when you go in as an expert witness, and I'm almost done with my notes, and I'm going to have people, I guarantee there's going to be a bunch of questions, So, because um, and this is only half of what, what I'm going to be talking about, but this is what I wanted to do with you guys. With, the, um, with being an expert witness, the first thing you do when you show up to be a witness is you're going to be called by an attorney to come in and visit and say, I've got a case or a potential case, and I've got a client that was injured, and I think that your expert training knowledge and skill would be beneficial to this case so that we can we can see if we really have something here, and if we do, what pieces of the puzzle are missing, and how you can help us, okay? So you show up, you're dressed nicely, you're dressed neatly, you're clean shaven, you got makeup on, you look your Sunday best. You look like you're going to church, and not the ones that play rock music and you're, you know, jamming in the aisles. Because I've been to some of those churches and you don't have to dress up for those. So, you know what I mean. Okay. Do you need to wear a suit? Probably not. But shirt and tie, nice dress, pantsuit, professional. You go in and you have your notebook and you get your pen in your hand. And you go in, you sit down, start talking to the person. If you start writing on a notepad right off the bat, the first thing that's going to happen is they're going to say, you know what, I'm not sure I want to use this person because they don't understand that this might be work product that might be discoverable. So their notes in this case right now, as they're writing it, could be used by the other side in a lawsuit. So the first thing you ask as a, as a witness is you come in, you sit down and you ask, may I please take notes or would you prefer I, we just talk for now? Because if you are not engaged as an expert witness, and this is te potentially testimony that would not be, uh, that could be admitted, that would not be under the client um, attorney privilege, um, the work product doctrine could apply here, where, where the exceptions to the work product doctrine might happen. Work product doctrine is an expansion of the attorney client privilege that says any work product that you use in development of a case is not admissible because it's part of the, the work for the case, right? It shouldn't be. We, we're trying to figure out how this case works and we don't have to give up all of our cards. We don't need to show them all. But if there is something in there that there is no way to get the information in any other reasonable way, then it might be admissible. So you have to be careful about the exceptions to the work product doctrine. It just shows that you're aware of it and it's a smart thing to do is just to listen to the case and see if there's a way that you can help them. Day two is you getting a price for them, how many hours you think it's going to be. They show a big giant stack of the records and they say, you know what, I'll let you take these if you give me a price um, or you can come sit in here and do it or however you work that out with the attorney, whether it's electronic zip files, it, it doesn't really matter. But you're going to give them a price and a number of hours that it's going to take for you to go through, do a review, and then you're going to ask, what is the format of the response you would like me to give you? Do you want me to come back in and we talk about it? Or do you want a written report of the findings? Because you might not like the findings, and that might be discoverable in court to help the other side. That's up to the attorney. You're going to let them make that decision on what the format is, and you're going to follow the format that you guys agree on. Let's assume for right now you find that there is enough information in the case that you could justifiably have a suit, and that you are retained as the expert witness for the case. Okay, so you've done you've done the preliminary work up front. You've helped them come up with some some 
places where you want to find the information, you've helped them write some interrogatories, but you haven't done the deposition and you haven't necessarily developed the full review of the standard of care and the, the, the legal um, uh, standards that we've talked about under the malpractice, the three-pronged test, you haven't really fully vetted all of that, but you're going to work on it. You gave them a price for it, but you haven't done it yet. Okay. Most of the work that you're going to be doing in this instance, in this case, is going to be that evaluating the standard of care, what should have been done, evaluating the facts in the case, helping them determine what the facts in the case are, where the holes are. But you have to be ready to be proffered to the court because at some point the court, the, the attorney is going to go in during the, uh, the discovery phase, which is the first half of the, the lawsuit, and they're going to they're gonna say, we have a list of witnesses because that's part of that process, and one of them is your name. And they'll schedule a motion and lemonade hearing for such and such date. And you'll have to show up and go through and do your voir dire and get beat up. Okay? So that's most of the time it's behind the scenes. Um, you can make a ton of money doing this. I've said that before. Uh, but you got to have the credibility to testify um, to, to make, make it worth your while, make it worth their while, or else you won't get hired again. If you lose the case form, even though you did the right thing and told everything is true, um, as long as you outlined the case for that, that attorney, you're going to have a good working relationship with them. You might lose help. They may lose the case, but you did everything you could. They might lose for other reasons. They might lose because of the information in the case, but that would be facts related, not because you violated the, and, and lied about the standard of care. This is a good point to talk about. The two things in this world that are the most important as a professional. One is your integrity, honesty, telling the truth, not bending the truth, not misguiding, misleading people. So integrity is number one, especially as an expert witness. If you don't have integrity, you're going to have a very short career as an expert witness. Very, very short career. Number two is your license. If you lose your license, you have zero credibility anyways, and you won't have a job. So those are the two things that if any one person, company, family member, friend, relative, next door neighbor, anybody ever tries to infringe on your integrity or your license, you put an end to it and you don't let them do it. Those are your most protected, valuable assets in your profession. Okay, said it. I've said that before. But I mean it, so don't let it happen. All right, opposing counsel, they are asking questions of you. They know the answers too. They know every answer to every question you're going to answer before you, they even ask it. No attorney, at least worth their salt, will ask a question in a deposition or when you're especially in front of a jury, will ask a question without knowing the answer. So if you don't know the answer or that question is inappropriate, you say, I don't know. Or you say, I need to think about that or I'm not convinced that that's the case or could you clarify the question? Those are all justifiable things to say. Now, if you're an expert witness and every other thing you say is like an eyewitness, I don't recall, I don't recall, I don't recall, you're not a very helpful eye expert witness, you're, you're going to lose the case for that person. They're going to have to find another expert to come in to step in and fix what you've screwed up. So you can't use that all the time. But if they're asking you, you know, if you're, if you're there as, a, um, as an expert to discuss... Uh, let's just say from a medical standpoint, let's say it's um, a certain type of surgery for treatment of, let's say, a gallbladder removal, how that surgery occurs. But then they start asking you questions about the equipment 
that is used for the laparoscopic surgery. You know, what's the wiring diagram look like on page 13 of the you know, instructions on how this thing is manufactured? I don't know. It has nothing to do with me. It's completely out of the scope of what I'm asked to do. You as a professional don't have to try to fudge or extend your potential quote-unquote knowledge on a topic. You're there to talk about X, Y, or Z. It's X, Y, or Z. So you have to be able to step up and say, look, that's way outside of what we're doing here. That's not at all important for what I'm doing. You will have to get your own expert to find that. I can't answer that. Okay, so that doesn't necessarily detract from your credibility, but if you do it all the time, it sure, sure as heck will. Okay, so that's a good one there is that they will always, always know the answer before they ask the questions. And remember, remember um, sorry, try to read my notes here. That's it. That's pretty much it. So that's kind of where I was going with my with my quick presentation about uh, malpractice and um, expert testimony. And then there's there's other things that you could expect as far as being deposed. And I've talked about this on my deposition cases that um, when you get deposed, the majority of the time what you're going to be doing is spending spending time describing your experience, training, knowledge, and skill to make you quote unquote credible one way or another. And um, that's the majority of what it is. You have to, again, be able to say no, or I don't know, or that's not on topic, or that doesn't have anything to do, or please provide clarification. That's a big one. Uh, questions sometimes will be drawn as a yes or no, but they're, they're compounded questions. So like, I see that you were um, yes or no. Please, please answer yes or no to this question. Um, you were um, at the scene on such and such time. It was it uh, for this particular situation, and uh, we noticed that um, you uh, did not offer or render help or aid. Um, is that true? Yes or no? Well, yes. Okay, I didn't help, or maybe I did, but it's questionable. Like maybe I was the one that ran for nine one one, but I didn't go do chest compressions. So you have to be able to say, well, that's a compounded question, and it's not really one that's that's a that's an open-ended question, not not a closed-ended question. We learned about that in nursing undergrad nursing school, right? So open-ended questions are, you know, those where you expect somebody to provide information in a paragraph, whereas the closed questions are going to be yes or no's. So if you get an open-ended question and they want you to answer yes or no, you say, uh-uh. Please ask a yes or no question and I'll answer it. I can't answer that because it needs description. So please provide a yes or no question and I'll give you a yes or no answer. Did you render aid? Yes. Please provide, did you do CPR? No. Well, then how did you yet render aid? I ran to call 911 because there were people on the scene already doing chest compressions and, and rescue breaths. All right, see how that works? So you have to be able to recognize the types of questions that are coming at you and, and be able to adapt to that. Um, as far as expert testimony is concerned, again, you have to look the part. You've got to act the part. You have to talk the part. You've got to be uh, quick on your feet and be willing to, um, to get drilled. I mean, you're, you're inviting people to hate you. Even though they don't personally hate you, it is the opposing counsel's job to make you look like the least competent human being on this planet Earth, period. And they might let you think you did a good job. And then once you get into trial, they'll actually come back and they'll get too far along in the case. And then they'll, then they'll start bringing up why you are not a credible person. And it might be too late for the case. Next thing you know, the trier of fact finds for the other side. 
So it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun for me to talk about this one. I think it's extremely interesting. Um, I'm not sure I would ever want to put myself in the position to be an expert witness. I just don't know. I mean, I, I, it would have to depend on the circumstances. I just, I, I don't know if I would want to invite getting beat up for a couple thousand bucks. I don't know if my life's that, that long. <laughs> I got a short life, man. I want to enjoy it. I don't know. I, I, it's not that I could handle the stress. It's just I don't know if I would, it would be worth it to me. So there's some people out there that love this. They love confrontation. They thrive on it. They, they're good on, under pressure. Those are the perfect people that you want to be able to do this. And so I invite you guys, if you're interested in doing it, um, I don't necessarily think that as a, as a provider, you need to go get certified to do legal nurse consulting. It's not a bad option to learn the legal aspects of things. But I think that if you um, had a, a, a helpful attorney walk you through the process and they said, you know what, I'll pay you, you know, 200 bucks an hour to do this and it might be a good learning experience for you to do it, you probably would learn more, in my opinion, doing it as practicing it through an attorney that's willing to help you. You get tied up with a slime ball that's not going to help you and you're on your own, it's going to be a painful experience. You're going to get shredded and, and um, you, you may never want to do it again. You'll be jaded. So I, I encourage you guys, if you're interested in legal nurse consulting, I don't know of any good programs. I haven't really looked into it because I ain't doing one. But um, if you guys have any questions about it, if somebody out there is a legal nurse consultant that has a good program, I wouldn't mind um, linking to it and just saying, hey, here's one of the listeners that's done it. And I wouldn't hesitate to send people to somebody. So um, that being said, there's a show for today, guys. I hope you guys had some fun listening to it. It's always fun for me to talk about it. And uh, if you guys have questions more specific or if you think I'm off base, you can always tell me I'm full of crap. I'll take it. Jeff at the mpdude.com. Don't forget you can support the show a bunch of different ways. We talk about them every show twice. Support the show financially. You know how. Amazon affiliate link. You can donate through the donate button. You can buy a t-shirt or you can hire me to read your contract. Great ways to do it. You guys out there working this week, I want you to be smart. I want you to promote the profession. I want you guys to join the Facebook group for uh, uh, the, the Clinical NPs uh, for Change Facebook group. I've linked to it in the last show. And uh, it's a great way to get in the conversation about how we can become more credible as a profession. It's kind of applicable, right? The credibility question. Um, so join that group. Jump in. Get in the conversation. Be smart, guys. Be safe. Promote our profession. And we'll talk soon.